This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 104th episode of the program. Today is July 21st, and before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank all of these kind individuals that decided to support us this week, either through Patreon or PayPal. So this week we have Brandy Hofsed, Charles Fleming, Christopher Just, Darren Basil, Holly Gomez, Kim Hightower, Lisa Wilbert, Mel Hampton, Patrice Thomas, Renee Bone, Ryan Froelich, Sam Kyung, Stephen Just, Susan Gillette, Thomas Messenger, Tassin Ajik 2, Vince Bird, and Walter. So if you'd like to support the show, you can visit patreon.com slash humanistreport, or you can go to humanistreport.com, but as long as you watch the show and share the show, um, and you know, like our videos and comment, as long as you are supporting the show that way, That's all I could ever ask or hope for. So on today's episode, first of all, I'll tell you about the silent Democratic primary that took place over the last week, where the Democratic Party's donors got together to select who they want to be the next Democratic Party's nominee in 2020. And we'll talk about the fallout from the collapse of Trumpcare, as well as President Trump's opinion on single pair, and of course, We'll discuss how Bernie Sanders decided to dance on the grave of Trumpcare now that it is at least temporarily defeated. Now, additionally, Trump gave the FCC the thumbs up to ruin the internet by rolling back Title II net neutrality regulations. Also on this episode, Al Gore decided to finally come around to single pair. I'll talk about how I feel about that. And finally on this episode, Jeff Sessions is trying to undo the progress we've made towards ending the tyrannical practice known as civil asset forfeiture. So all of these topics will be discussed on today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. So as you all know, this week we got some encouraging news. The Republican healthcare bill is dead for now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Republicans won't opt to just repeal the Affordable Care Act without replacing it, and it certainly doesn't mean that they won't try to revive this bill later down the line. So the reason why this bill collapsed is because they just couldn't find enough Senate Republicans to support it. So as a result, the Republican Party is currently engulfed in intra-party conflict, and Vice President Mike Pence, along with Donald Trump, took the time to scold all of the Republicans who didn't want to go against 88% of the American people who did not support this bill. The Senate should vote to repeal now and replace later or return to the legislation carefully crafted in the House and Senate. But either way, inaction is not an option. Congress needs to step up Congress needs to do their job, and Congress needs to do their job now. We have to repeal and replace Obamacare. We can repeal it, but the best is repeal and replace, and let's get going. This was the one we were worried about. You weren't there, but you're going to be. You're going to be. Look, he wants to remain a senator, doesn't he? Okay. And I think the people of your state, which I know very well, I think they're going to appreciate what you hopefully will do. Any senator who votes against starting debate is really telling America that you're fine with Obamacare. So what you see happening now is the vice president scolding Republicans who refuse to get on board. You see Donald Trump tacitly threatening to primary Republicans like Dean Heller, who refused to support the bill. And the reason why they're so heartbroken that this draconian bill didn't pass is because it makes the party look grossly incompetent. It makes them look awful because Donald Trump has now been president for nearly eight months. Republicans have been in control of all branches of government now for more than half a year, and they have no accomplishments. They show that they are unable to govern. They can't deliver on the one thing they've pledged to do over the course of the last eight years. So they know that this makes them look bad. And now as a result, the party is imploding. They hate that they can't get this done. 
Uh, and admittedly, it is fun to watch. Uh, <laughs> and my favorite part is that some Republicans are now beginning to admit that they are incompetent. So according to Raw Story, House Republicans are now publicly expressing their frustration with the party, as well as their worries about their future. At this point, we're a little incompetent, Representative Mark Walker told BuzzFeed of the party's failure to repeal and replace the Obama-era Affordable Care Act despite controlling Congress and the White House. Others, like Representative Dennis Ross, were more unequivocal in their condemnation of the Senate's health care gaffe. The Senate has failed the American people and abandoned voters who were promised that they would repeal and replace the disastrous Obamacare. The House did its job. We honored our pledge and passed legislation to repeal and replace Obamacare in early May. There's no need to sugarcoat this. I'm very upset with the Senate, Dennis Ross wrote in a statement on Wednesday. If they ultimately end up not getting anything done, then you just put a bunch of vulnerable Republican House members on record for nothing, a House GOP consultant said on condition of anonymity. So overall, they look incompetent and they know that they look incompetent. But what some of these House Republicans are complaining about is that, hey, look, we voted for this draconian bill that only a small portion of the American people support, and now that made us look bad for nothing because the Senate didn't go along and also do what we did and pass this draconian bill. But that's too bad. You voted for this because you chose to fall in line under a president that has no idea what health care reform can and should entail. He is doing this because he wants to appease the uh, health insurance industry, and that's what you did as well. You voted for this bill, and now you look bad, and now you have to live with that. But the reason why this bill ultimately failed is because the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office scored this bill, and they determined that 22 million people would lose their insurance as a result of this bill. And now it's the case that the vice president as well as the president are starting to float the idea that if they simply repeal the Affordable Care Act right now, then they can just replace it later. So Trump stated via Twitter that, quote, Republicans should just repeal failing Obamacare now and work on a new health care plan that will start from a clean slate, Dems will join in. Now, even though Donald Trump changed his mind less than 24 hours later, Senator Mitch McConnell is trying to revive the Obamacare Repeal Reconciliation Act, which is essentially an ACA repeal with no replacement. So, some Republicans are actually now considering repealing now, replacing later. So the Huffington Post explains that the Obamacare Repeal Reconciliation Act would, quote, eliminate the Affordable Care Act tax credits for private insurance, funding for its Medicaid expansion, the individual mandate that most Americans obtain health coverage or face tax penalties, the mandate that large employers offer health benefits to workers, and the taxes on wealthy people and health care corporations. Now, under this particular piece of legislation, the CBO scored it, and estimated that 32 million people would lose their current health insurance coverage, and that includes 17 million people next year alone. So for all the Republicans who are now pushing for just a repeal without a replacement, now they're learning that that would yield even worse results, which is why some Senate Republicans are now scrambling to revive Trump care. So now as we watch all this chaos unfold, one thing is clear. Repealing the Affordable Care Act is much more difficult than the Republicans thought it would be. It's because, you know, they know how to campaign, but when it comes to governing themselves, they have no idea how to govern. They just can't get things done, and this is because all of the legislation they're pushing is so unpopular. So, now that the Republican Party is imploding and they are in shambles, the Democratic Party has got to capitalize on this moment of Republican weakness and collectively come together around single payer because it's clear that a lot of Americans don't like what the Republican Party is doing. Even some of Trump's own supporters, even though they support Donald Trump by and large, they dislike his health care bill because, look, let's face it, it's draconian. It's just shitty overall. If you are pushing for a bill that would make people lose their health coverage, that's not a health care bill. That's an anti-health care bill. And a lot of people who even support Trump are beginning to take notice. But the goal here now is to end this debate once and for all and push for single payer. But will the Democratic Party come to their senses and actually do that? It seems unlikely, but for now, we can all breathe a little bit easier knowing that this disaster of a bill has been defeated. But look, 
let's not celebrate too much because this isn't the end of this bill. And if this bill fails, the American Health Care Act fails, we know there's going to be some other iteration down the line. We know that they're going, going to continue to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act without replacing it. Look, healthcare is under attack, and there's one solution. Single-payer health care. There's a lot of people that Donald Trump is blaming for the failure of the American Health Care Act, and this includes some Senate Republican holdouts, but he's also blaming Democrats, and he is alleging that they are obstructionists, and they don't know what to do besides obstruct. That's the only thing that they are capable of doing. That's all they're good at, is obstruction. Now, to me personally, I find this claim ironic because the Republican Party successfully blocked and ultimately stole a Supreme Court nominee from the last president. And furthermore, they used the filibuster a record-breaking number of times during Obama's presidency. But it's the Democratic Party who is <laughs> the obstructionist party, not the Republican Party. Uh, and look, I could think of a thousand different adjectives to describe the Democratic Party, but obstructionist certainly isn't one of them. If anything, they're not obstructionist enough because there were a ton of Democrats in the Senate who voted with Donald Trump. I mean, if you look at Joe Manchin, he voted with Donald Trump to confirm his nominees a majority of the time. So to call the party obstructionist doesn't make any sense to me but nonetheless bernie sanders wasted no time dancing on this bill's grave so upon hearing the news that trump care failed bernie sanders tweeted out that this is a great victory for the millions who stood up and fought back i congratulate everyone for their hard work and he also stated in this country we should not be throwing millions off of health insurance we should be guaranteeing health care for all as a right and additionally in an interview with pbs news bernie sanders explained why this bill ultimately failed and he also addressed Donald Trump's ironic claim that the Democratic Party is obstructionist. What went wrong, Judy, is they brought forth a disastrous health care bill that had the support of all of 12 percent of the American people uh, that was opposed by the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, the AARP and virtually every national health care organization. Uh, understood that when you throw 22 million people off of health insurance, when you cut Medicaid by 800 billion, when you raise premiums for older workers, when you defund Planned Parenthood, and you make it almost impossible for people with pre-existing conditions to get the health care they need and can afford, you know what, you got a bill that's a stinker, it should not go anyplace, and it did not go anyplace, and that's a good thing for the American people, and I thank the millions of people who stood up and fought back and said that that legislation is not what this country is about. So when the president, uh, he did criticize today the Republicans, but he also blamed Democrats. And he said Democrats are obstructionists. They're only about obstructing. Progress. Well, if he wants to blame me for helping to kill that bill, I accept that responsibility completely. This bill was an absolute disaster. Its goal was primarily to give tax breaks to the rich, uh, and to large corporations rather than to address the needs of the American people. The president wants to blame me and anybody else for, for preventing 22 million Americans from losing their health insurance. I accept that criticism. So everything that Bernie Sanders said in that segment is 100% right. But notice what he's doing here, because I think that strategically it shows that Bernie Sanders is very smart. So Bernie Sanders, he knows that he's not unilaterally to blame for the failure of Trump care. And of course, he rightfully credits grassroots activists for fighting back against this bill. But in allowing Donald Trump to blame him, to blame him for the failure of a bill that had a 12% approval rating, that doesn't make Bernie Sanders look bad. That's good for Bernie Sanders. So in 2020, if Bernie Sanders does ultimately decide to run, which he probably will, if Donald Trump wants to pin blame on Bernie Sanders for this bill's failure, that exponentially helps Bernie Sanders. So this is really smart here. He's telling Donald Trump, he's opening up the door for Donald Trump to attack him, which Donald Trump won't attack Bernie Sanders, because as we all know, Donald Trump is terrified of Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders can defeat Donald Trump in 2020. Uh, but he's allowing Donald Trump to attack him for this, when by attacking Bernie Sanders for this. It helps out Bernie Sanders. It's just a brilliant strategy. Bernie Sanders is a very politically astute person. And when it comes to strategy, we now know that Bernie Sanders, 
He knows what you've got to do to make Donald Trump look like shit. And this certainly is one of those things that makes Donald Trump look bad. Now, Donald Trump is trying to paint himself in a more positive light. He's saying, look, people are suffering. Health insurance premiums, you know, they're going up. But you see, the reason why the Affordable Care Act is failing is because it still bases our healthcare system on profit. And when you do that, you set us up for failure. So Donald Trump, in trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with his draconian solution, that's not going to help the problem. It only allows insurance companies to rip us off even more because it allows them to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions and rip them off. So Donald Trump is not the good guy here. And really, there's no way that he can come out of this looking like a good guy. And Bernie Sanders knows that. So by allowing Donald Trump to attack him and basically in Inviting criticism, Bernie Sanders is making himself look like the hero, you know, in, in the end, after this whole chaotic situation is over. And I think that it's just brilliant. So kudos to Bernie Sanders because what he's doing here is great. Throughout the course of this last week, we learned that Trump care imploded when it failed to muster enough support among Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. Now, Donald Trump afterwards held a press briefing with Senate Republicans to talk about why they should get on board with his draconian health care bill. Now, he stated that since insurance premiums are rising under the Affordable Care Act currently, Republicans and Democrats should feel compelled to act. Now, in weighing out the different options and trying to throw both Republicans and Democrats under the bus, he talked about single payer. Now, what he said about single payer was a lot different than what he said previously about single payer throughout the course of his career. So, let's hear him out. Let's hear what he has to say. Uh, and then I have quite a bit to say about the way he described single-payer. We have no Democrat help. They're obstructionists. That's all they're good at, is obstruction. They have no ideas. They've gone so far left. They're looking for single-payer. That's what they want. But single-payer will bankrupt our country because it's more than we take in for just health care. So single-payer is never going to work. But that's what they'd like to do. They have no idea what the consequence will be. And it will be horrible, horrible health care where you wait online for weeks to even see a doctor. Okay, so you get the point. The Democratic Party, they've moved so far to the left. And that's why they won't support his health care bills, because they want single payer instead, which is strange to me because... When they had a supermajority, they opted to go for a Republican health care plan, the Affordable Care Act, instead of single payer. And furthermore, they don't support single payer. He's giving the Democratic Party credit for something that they're not in favor of. If they did support single payer, they would be exponentially more popular because a majority of voters, including a plurality of Republicans, now support single payer. So by saying, one, that they support single payer when that's not true, and saying that they are extremist for support supporting single-payer is simply untrue. It's just a populist position to take. And of course, we all know the Democratic Party does not support single-payer. We are doing everything in our power currently to push them towards single-payer, but a lot of them are not willing to budge. Now, also, a lot of what he said about single-payer, you know, irrespective of, of what he said about the Democratic Party's support for single-payer, it was just flat out wrong. So let's get to some of these specific statements that he said about single payer because it really was obnoxious given what he said about it previously. So first of all, he said that the Democrats have no ideas. That was possibly the one thing that he said throughout the course of this press briefing that was actually truthful because they don't have any ideas. And of course, single payer certainly is not one of them. There's some Democrats who are coming around to the idea of single payer, but the aggregate party still does not support single payer. Democratic Party leaders like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Tom Perez, they don't support single-payer, so to say that they support single-payer is wrong, but Donald Trump is correct when he states that they have no ideas, because they don't have any ideas. Now, he also states here that single-payer will bankrupt our country. This is just flat-out wrong, because we pay more per capita than other countries with single-payer, and we get worse results. So, that's a lie. It's not grounded in reality, and the data just doesn't back up this assumption. He is using a health insurance industry talking point. Now, he also states here, which is my favorite part, single-payer will be horrible, horrible health care where you wait online for weeks. Is that so? 
Is that so? You're going to wait online for weeks. I don't know what waiting online for weeks means, but basically he's using the same tired talking point that Republicans as well as some corporate Democrats and the health insurance industry uses. It is a way to scare people into making them think that the government will determine how long you're going to have to wait when in actuality single payer works out just fine in countries like the UK and Canada. But I'm not going to debunk Donald Trump's argument here with my own argument. I'm actually going to use Donald Trump's previous arguments against him. So in a 2015 appearance on The Late Show, he stated, a friend of mine was in Scotland recently. He got very, very sick. They took him by ambulance and he was there for four days. He was really in trouble and they released him and he said, where do I pay? And they said, there's no charge. Not only that, he said it was like great doctors, great care. I mean, we could have a great system in this country. So to me, that doesn't really sound like a quote, horrible, horrible system now, does it? Now, Donald Trump, you know, in saying this, it's not like Scotland was the outlier, like he was against single pair, but Scotland was the one exception because he stated how much he liked Canada's system as well. In a book he published in 2000 titled The America We Deserve, he wrote the Canadian plan also helps Canadians live longer and healthier than Americans. There are fewer medical lawsuits, less loss of labor to sickness, and lower costs to companies paying for the medical care of their employees. If the program were in place in Massachusetts in 1999, it would have reduced administrative costs by 2.5 million. We need, as a nation, to re-examine the single-payer plan, as many individual states are doing. Does that sound like a horrible, horrible plan to you? Because to me, that sounds great. Now, let's go back and read that quote again. If the program were in place in Massachusetts in 1999, it would have reduced administrative costs by 2.5 million. Now, let me remind you again what he said about single-payer health care this week. But single-payer will bankrupt our country because it's more than we take in for just health care. Wrong. Now, let's be clear here. It's not like he admired certain aspects of single-payer health care and overall was more in support of a market-driven for-profit model. He outright supported single-payer health care at one point in time. Uh, liberal in health care. We have to take care of people that are sick. Universal health coverage I like universal I like universal I like universal Donald Trump supporters will counter by saying look Mike that was 17 years ago is he not able to change his mind on this subject well sure he is able to change his mind like everyone else even though he shouldn't because the Donald Trump in 2000 was more correct than the Donald Trump of 2017 but even when he was running for president back in 2015 the sentiments that he expressed towards single-payer were generally supportive of it. Fifteen years ago, you called yourself a liberal on health care. You were for a single-payer system, a Canadian-style system. Why were you for that then, and why aren't you for it now? As far as single-payer, it works in Canada. It works incredibly well in Scotland. It could have worked in a different age, which is the age you're talking about here. What I'd like to see is a private system without the artificial lines around every state. I have a big company with thousands and thousands of employees, and if I'm negotiating in New York or in New Jersey or in California, I have like one bidder. Nobody can bid. You know why? Because the insurance companies are making a fortune because they have control of the politicians, of course, with the exception of the politicians of the stage. But they have total control of the politicians. They're making a fortune. Get rid of the artificial lines and you will have yourself great plans. And then we have to take care of the people that can't take care of themselves. And I will do that through a different system. So notice that for most of that video, it seemed like he liked the idea of single pair, but ultimately was more in favor of a market-driven model. However, towards the end of that clip there, he talked about how overall he's going to take care of people that are not able to get insurance themselves. So he's kind of flirting with the idea of single pair, even though he's not outright endorsing it like he did back in 2000, but nonetheless, he still is expressing support towards the idea of single payer. But now he's saying that single payer would be a horrible, horrible plan. And it will be horrible, horrible healthcare. And less than a year ago when he was first elected, 
he signaled support for single payer yet again. Everybody's got to be covered. This is an unrepublican thing for me to say because a lot of times they say, no, no, the lower 25%, they can't afford private. But universal health care. I am going to take care of everybody. I'm, I don't care if it costs me votes or not. Everybody's going to be taken care of much better than they're taken care of now. The uninsured person right. is going to be taken care of. They're going to be how? taken care of. How? I would make a deal with existing hospitals to take care of people. And you know what? This is probably... Make a deal. Who pays for it? The government's going to pay for it, but we're going to save so much money on the other side. But for the most part, it's going to be a private plan, and people are going to be able to go out and negotiate great plans with lots of different competition, with lots of competitors, with great companies, and they can have their doctors, they can have their plans, they can have everything. So what he said there sounded a lot like a single-payer system, or at least a watered-down version of single-payer. So my question is, how did we get from this... Everybody's got to be covered. ...to this... Single-payer is never going to work. ...in the span of one year? Well, I could give you 4.7 million different reasons why Donald Trump changed his opinion when it comes to single-payer. Because when you look at his contributions from the health industry... He took $4.7 million from them. And if he chooses to make single-payer a reality, then he loses out on all of their money come 2020 when he's going to be running for president again. So, it's very clear, Donald Trump was bought off. Even though during his campaign, he lambasted other Republicans who were puppets for their donors, now, he is just as big of a puppet as they are, if not worse. Because if anything, he's become more corporatist than the establishment Republicans he lambasted during his campaign. So, Donald Trump is now against single-payer. He's an enemy of single-payer when he knows deep down inside that single-payer is the way to go. I don't believe that Donald Trump changed his opinion. Well, I mean... Let me be clear, it's certainly possible that he changed his opinion because he's flip-flopped on a thousand different issues multiple times. But when it comes to single-payer, I think that the reason why he's against it now is easy. It's because he was bought off by the health insurance industry. It's that simple. And he was co-opted by the establishment. And now he knows that that's a very unpopular thing to say if you want to seek the support from the establishment. And I'll tell you this, Donald Trump, a majority of the country, including a plurality of people in your party, want single payer. And by saying what you're saying, you're not saying anything unique or brave. You're saying what all the other sellouts say about single payer. And it's not true. So bring back the old Donald Trump who was right when it comes to single payer. Because even though you were wrong on a plethora of other issues throughout the course of your career, this was the one area where the broken clock that is Donald Trump was right twice a day. You're wrong now. Single payer is the way to go if you ever actually want to stop medical bankruptcies and deaths from people who don't have health insurance. So we are currently witnessing a major cultural shift in the direction of single payer. So as you all know, a majority of Americans want a single payer healthcare system and it's now even the case that a plurality of Republicans are in favor of single payer. So some of the more politically astute Democrats are actually finally getting on board with single payer because grassroots activists have been relentless in pushing them in that direction. Uh, so we finally got our first really high-profile Democrat to endorse the idea of single-payer, which I think is great, but I'll tell you my thoughts overall because I'm kind of torn on it. So, Alexander Kaufman of the Huffington Post reports, Al Gore called for single-payer health care on Tuesday, one day after a revolt by GOP senators dashed Republican hopes of passing a bill to repeal Obamacare. Speaking at an event to promote his new climate change documentary, the former vice president said health insurance companies have failed to offer cost-effective coverage, even under the Affordable Care Act. A government-run, single-payer system would provide taxpayer-funded basic health care coverage for everyone. The private sector has not shown any ability to provide good, affordable health care for all, Gore told a packed auditorium at Borough of Manhattan Community College. I believe we ought to have single-payer health care. Gore did not include a universal government health care option in his platform during his unsuccessful bid for the White House in 2000, but in 2002 indicated he favored such a policy. I think we've reached a point where the entire health care system is in impending crisis, Gore said at an ABC news panel at the time. I have reluctantly come to the conclusion that we should begin drafting a single-payer national health insurance plan. So... I'll tell you why I'm torn on that, because overall, of course, I'm ecstatic that he decided to endorse single-payer. I mean, 
Al Gore is someone who is huge in the Democratic Party. He's a Democratic Party superstar. You know, uh, not that's not my opinion. Just, you know, a lot of Democratic Party voters and establishment members look up to Al Gore. They love him. Uh, so this is great. This is a very good thing. I'm glad that he's coming around to single pair. But the reason why I'm torn is because his endorsement for single pair comes nearly two decades too late. Why is it that there are so many Democratic politicians that only choose to support the more progressive policies when their careers are over, when they have no political power whatsoever? I mean, why can't you be bold and courageous when you're actually in office, when you have the power needed to affect change? Why didn't you run on this in 2000? And, you know, in 2002, when he signaled support for it, he said, you know, I reluctantly support single payer. Back then, even Hillary Clinton presumably still supported single pair. Even Bill Clinton may have supported it. And you only were reluctantly coming around to it. And there's still people wondering why Al Gore lost in 2000. Look, here's the thing about Democrats. And I'm sure that Obama will come around to single pair as well. You need to come around to these issues that we care about at the right time. I know that currently it's a good idea to get on board because that's where the country is headed, but I mean, single payer, it's not like this is a new thing. We've been pushing for single payer, not me, but activists have been pushing for single payer for decades. So why is it that you waited this long to come around and endorse it? You know, it, it's just, it's very frustrating to me because again you're you're telling us this now when you have no <laughs> way of affecting change i mean certainly it's not inconsequential because he has a lot of sway with the democratic party establishment and hopefully you know if he says this then they'll be more inclined to hear him out and think yeah you know maybe he has a good idea maybe he is doing the right thing here and is supporting what grassroots activists want but i mean come on get on board when it matters. But look, let me be clear here because I don't want it to seem like I'm shitting on Al Gore too much and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to come out and shit on every Democrat that is late to the party and supporting single-payer healthcare. We're certainly glad to have you and I think that the more people that come around, even if it's late, the better. But it's just so frustrating because Al Gore had the chance to really affect change, but he chose to go in a corporatist direction. He chose Joe Lieberman as his running mate and he was not supporting single-payer. So it's just... It's so frustrating. Look, to any politician who wants, to any Democratic politician specifically who wants a chance at winning and uh, moving up in your career, if you're politically ambitious, if you don't get on board with single pair, you will not have a very lengthy career because this is where the country is going. And I'm not willing to negotiate and come down and support a public option. We're just in favor of single payer because if we don't push for it now, then when will we? Why do we have to wait to fix Obamacare and maybe move towards a public option? I'm just done. I'm just done. I'm fed up. I want a single payer now. Canadians have had a single payer for decades. You know, our friends in the UK have had a single payer healthcare system. Why can't we have what they have? Stop being corrupt. Stop being corporatist. Just support something that a majority of Americans want. And that's not necessarily a message to Al Gore. It's a message to the collective Democratic Party establishment. So look, kudos to Al Gore overall. I don't want to shit on him too much because I'm glad he finally came around and is now on the right side of history. But for fuck's sake, to all the other Democrats, maybe come on board when you have some power. Even though it's the case that we just had a presidential election not even a year ago, we're already forced to think about the next presidential election because there's an ongoing silent primary process that is occurring before a single voter has even had the chance to cast their vote. Now, I'm talking about a meeting where American oligarchs convened to hand-select the Democratic Party's next presidential nominee. So before I tell you who they decided to select... We'll talk about who voters are currently thinking about with respect to the 2020 election. So according to a survey of 836 registered voters conducted by public policy polling, when you match up Donald Trump with Democratic candidates, Joe Biden beats Trump by a 15-point margin with only 7% of voters claiming that they're not sure who they'd vote for. Bernie Sanders beats Trump by a 13-point margin with 9% of voters not sure. And when it comes to other potential Democratic presidential contenders in 2020, Elizabeth Warren also beats Trump by 7 points with 9% unsure. Cory Booker beats Trump by 5 points with 15% of voters saying they're unsure. 
Kamala Harris beats Trump by one point, with 19% of voters saying that they're unsure. And when you match up Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg with Donald Trump, they tie, with 20% of voters being unsure. Now, absent from this list are people like Kirsten Gillibrand and Tim Kaine, individuals who could very well be running for president in 2020. But the overall takeaway from this poll is that currently Donald Trump is in really bad shape. Now, we don't know what's going to happen between now and 2020. There's a lot that could change. But overall, the main takeaway is that Donald Trump is in bad shape and there are two individuals that have a very good chance of beating him, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. But when it comes to people like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Mark Zuckerberg and to a lesser extent, Elizabeth Warren, Voters are less sure about these particular candidates, but they're more sure about people like Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. So if the goal truly is to defeat Donald Trump, you'd think that the Democratic establishment would opt for either Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, but the party's donors have made their decision, and it is not Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. So during this silent primary that occurred, American oligarchs decided that they want Kamala Harris to be the Democratic Party's next nominee. So The Hill reports that Democratic donors are buzzing about Kamala Harris, saying that the Democratic donor class is abuzz about Kamala Harris after the freshman California senator was faded this weekend at an event in the Hamptons surrounded by top fundraisers. The Bridgehampton event where Harris mingled with top donors and supporters of Hillary Clinton was the ultimate signal that Harris is thinking much bigger than the Senate, one top bundler said. They see the former prosecutor turned California Attorney General as embodying the qualities a Democratic presidential candidate would need to win the White House in 2020. Since November, Harris has become one of her party's biggest draws. She has raised upwards of 600000 for Senate candidates in recent months, and she recently raised $227,000 in an email from MoveOn.org, according to sources close to Harris. Kamala has come to embody what's next for our party, said Ben LeBolt, a Democratic strategist and former spokesman for former President Barack Obama. She's no Barack Obama. She doesn't give speeches like Obama and she doesn't fundraise like Obama, said one Democratic fundraiser. But that's not the way she's looking at it. In this political climate, she's saying, if not me, then who? So at this swanky event in the Hamptons, all of the American oligarchs that tend to back Democratic Party candidates, as well as the consultants and Democratic strategists, all got together. Uh, none of us were invited, but they decided, look, the person who will be the next Democratic nominee is going to be Kamala Harris. Now, if the goal really is to defeat Donald Trump, if they truly dislike Donald Trump like they purport, then that seems like an odd choice when you consider the poll that I talked about. So going back to that poll, I cited Kamala Harris only beats Trump by one point with 19% of voters currently remaining unsure about her. Now, to be fair, this doesn't necessarily mean that she's a terrible candidate, but the main problem with Kamala Harris at this point in time is that we don't know much of anything about her with respect to policy. We do know that when she was the Attorney General of California that she decided to not prosecute Steve Mnuchin, whose bank literally violated foreclosure violations in 2013, and of course he went on to become the Treasury Secretary of the White House. Now what we also know about Kamala Harris is that she has a super PAC, and some of her largest donors include Time Warner and Comcast, companies who are currently rallying against net neutrality. We also know that her record on the death penalty is complicated because while she chose not to pursue the death penalty against a cop killer, she also chose not to allow the death penalty to be challenged legally. Also, when she had the opportunity to endorse a true progressive, she didn't. She was one of Hillary Clinton's loudest cheerleaders and endorsed her back in August of 2015. But when it comes to almost everything else about Kamala Harris, we don't know very much. And this is because she is still only a freshman senator that hasn't had the chance to really build up her resume. But we do know one really important thing about Kamala Harris that, to me, tells me everything that I need to know about Kamala Harris. She's willing to sell out. She met with the largest donors to the Democratic Party at the swanky event in the Hamptons, and she sold her soul to them. Why else would they be a buzz unless she promised them everything they wanted? It's because she sold out, so we may not know much about her policies, but we do know that her policies will be more friendly towards large multinational corporations because she is willing to get friendly with them, and they are very excited about Kamala Harris. They found their new puppet. So, if you honestly are trying to 
push Kamala Harris and shove her down our throats like you did Hillary Clinton, that's going to be a problem. If you truly care about defeating Donald Trump, that will be a problem. One, because we don't know much about her. Yes, the polls show that she doesn't do very well against Donald Trump compared to Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, but that that may change. But I mean, if you're honestly thinking that progressives are going to accept this butt-off puppet, think again, because that's not going to happen. And if you really want to defeat Donald Trump, which you should want to, because we have a Supreme Court that will permanently flip, or not permanently, but certainly for decades, flip to conservatives if he wins a second term, because Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not getting any younger. And Donald Trump may have the opportunity to replace her, which would be devastating. So here's an idea to all of the American oligarchs and Democratic Party elites who thinks that they can single-handedly select the next Democratic Party nominee before any of us has even had the chance to cast our votes. Uh, If you honestly think that your candidate is going to have the advantage, you're horribly mistaken because the fact that you now endorsed Kamala Harris, it tells us that she's a corporate sellout and that exponentially disadvantages her because Americans are against the establishment. So why would they back a candidate that is already getting in bed with the establishment before she announced her intentions to run in 2020. I mean, that makes no sense. The American voter is so fed up with the American establishment, the political establishment, I mean, this includes both parties, that they voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. So if you honestly think that they're going to get on board with Kamala Harris, it's not going to happen. So here's the thing. If Kamala Harris really wants to run, here's what she needs to do right now. She needs to renounce all of these large American oligarchs that are trying to buy her off, and she needs to raise her money exclusively via grassroots. Otherwise, she's not going to have a chance, and her poll numbers won't improve because you have to win over progressives if you want to be the next president and you want to defeat Donald Trump. Winning over progressives entails you not selling out. Attorney General Jeff Sessions is slowly but surely taking a wrecking ball to some of the few areas where President Obama's attorneys general made progress, and recently he announced that he is choosing to unilaterally undo progress we've made with respect to one of the most brazenly tyrannical policies in existence, civil asset forfeiture. So according to Robert Everett Johnson of Politico, he reports that everyday law enforcement officials across the United States seize cash from motorists stopped at the side of the road. It's called civil forfeiture, and the stories of abuse are legion. Over $17,000 seized from the owner of a barbecue restaurant in Staunton, Virginia. Over $13,000 seized from a former church deacon in DeKalb County, Georgia. Over $50,000 seized from a Christian rock band in Muscogee County, Oklahoma. Civil forfeiture allows government to seize property based on the mere suspicion that it is connected to a crime. For instance, the fact that the cops think someone has too much cash is enough to warrant a seizure. After the property is seized in a complete reversal of the way the American justice system is supposed to work, owners must prove their own innocence to get it back. Public outrage over the practice has grown as more tales of abuse have been reported. And fortunately, over the past three years, 24 states have passed reforms to protect property owners and curtail civil forfeiture. Less fortunately, on Wednesday, attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a new federal policy that threatens to undermine those reforms. Speaking in a small conference room surrounded by law enforcement officials, Sessions announced the federal government was rolling back an Eric Holder-era policy that had sharply curtailed so-called adoptive seizures. An adoptive seizure occurs when a state police officer seizes property and then transfers it to the federal government, which then forfeits the property under federal law. Importantly, state law enforcement gets to keep up to 80% of the proceeds of the forfeiture. To understand why that matters, imagine you are a motorist whose cash is seized in a state with strong protections for property owners. Under state law, state police can take your property only if they convict you of a crime, but using an adoptive seizure, state police can take your property without convicting you of anything and can rely on federal prosecutors to forfeit the money and pay a kickback of 80% to the local police department. Those state law protections no longer protect you from anything. In other words, by reauthorizing adoptive seizures, the Attorney General's policy will allow state police to circumvent protections for property rights put in place by state legislatures. Worse, because proceeds from the sale go to state 
state law enforcement, the federal government actually pays state police to circumvent their own law. It's practically an open invitation to corruption and abuse. Wednesday's directive is particularly jarring, coming from an attorney general who has previously embraced federalism, for instance, criticizing the Voting Rights Act as overly intrusive. Proponents of federalism often say that states are laboratories of democracy, and by reforming their forfeiture laws, many states have embarked on an experiment to provide greater protection for property rights. The federal government accomplishes nothing by cutting off those experiments at the knees. Now, as I was reading that story to you, John Locke was rolling in his grave because this policy is the antithesis of the classic liberal philosophy that most so-called small government conservatives claim to adhere to. So for most classical liberals, agreeing to submit to the authority of a government is only acceptable insofar as that government provides you protection for your property, but with civil asset forfeiture, your property is being arbitrarily taken from you. I mean, this is an inherently tyrannical policy that conservatives should never back. And again, it's ironic because Jeff Sessions is a so-called federalist. He is supposed to allow, or this is what he believes, he you allow the states to do what they want, their laboratories, and you let them experiment and do the policies that they want. But he's saying, you know what? As the attorney general, you're no longer allowed. We are going to allow cops to take your property from you arbitrarily, and then you have to prove your innocence when the American justice system was practically founded on the idea that you are innocent until proven guilty. I mean, I don't know how to describe this as anything other than tyrannical. It's just tyrannical, and I don't want to be redundant in using that word, but it's tyrannical, and we've got to say it again. This is a conservative, a small government conservative, saying we should allow state actors, police officers in these states to have the autonomy to steal property from people. It's just, it's completely absurd to me. And to me now, I'm wondering if all of these small government conservatives in the Republican Party will uh, be principled and speak out against what Jeff Sessions is doing. I mean, certainly I expect Ron Paul and Rand Paul to speak out, but I mean, will most Republicans denounce what Jeff Sessions is doing? I mean, they, they claim that they are in favor of small government, but I can't think of a bigger government than one that literally steals property from citizens. I mean, that violates the social contract that classic liberals purport that they believe in. I mean, it's just, it's, it's completely absurd to me. Civil asset forfeiture is one of those things where I can't understand how anyone is in favor of it how anyone is. I mean, this is this is a bipartisan issue. I think conservatives and progressives alike should all equally hate this issue because there's no reason for state actors to take the property of people that haven't been proven to be guilty. It, it makes no sense to me. So with Jeff, Jeff Sessions doing this, he proves yet again how out of touch he is and how he has no principles. He claims to be a small government conservative, but really that position is going to change depending on a particular policy that he likes. So obviously, if you are conservative and you are worried about an overreach of government power, this is it right here. Speak out against this because civil asset forfeiture is its just a form of tyranny that is completely arbitrary. A few months ago, I showed you some clips of a town hall that occurred over Mother's Day weekend featuring Democratic Representative Ruben Kiewin. Now, Ruben is an individual that campaigned on a progressive platform. He maintained that healthcare is a basic human right, and once he was elected, he became a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So, by most standards, many would consider him a progressive, and rightfully so. However, there's something strange about Ruben Kiewin. Unlike most of his Democratic colleagues in the House, he has not co-sponsored H.R. 676, which is a single-payer healthcare bill that would make universal healthcare in America a reality. So his constituents showed up to ask him why he didn't co-sponsor H.R. 676, and throughout the course of this town hall, I focused on one attendee in particular, a grieving mother who shared her story with Representative Kiwin. She told him about how her daughter died because she was unable to provide proof of insurance and she did not receive basic medical screenings that would have saved her life. So this grieving mother shared her story and she said that one death is one too many and she asked him kindly to co-sponsor HR 676 to make sure that what happened to her daughter never happens again. 
And what happened next was appalling. Representative Kiwin looked her in the eyes, and after hearing her story, he said no. Now, I don't know how anyone with a heart could tell her no after hearing her story, but that's what Representative Kiwin did. So, I was outraged. My viewers were outraged after we saw what he did. And thousands of people flooded his office with calls. We actually filled up his inbox in both offices. And what I called him, this was what I said. And let me just tell you this, if you are not willing to co-sponsor HR 676, we will be primarying you, you will be voted out of office, and even though you just were sworn in, you will be losing your job. And I will be doing everything I can to pour money into the campaign of your primary challenger in 2018 if you do not co-sponsor HR 676. Now, when I made that threat to Ruben Kiwin and told him that I would attempt to primary him if he didn't co-sponsor HR 676, I wasn't bluffing. And now, months later, he still hasn't co-sponsored HR 676 after he has received thousands of phone calls after telling that mother no. But I now have some exciting news. So I am now honored to bring you an exclusive announcement regarding that very subject about Ruben Kiwin. As many of you already know, I have been advocating non-stop for healthcare across Nevada as well as across the nation. I've been telling the story of my daughter, Shalin. Two years ago, Shalin went to the emergency room with nearly all the signs, symptoms, and risk factors of a blood clot. Because she was unable to provide proof of health insurance, she was denied the appropriate care, which ultimately led to her dying in my arms from a pulmonary embolism. Her death at the hands of our nation's barbaric, profit-driven healthcare system, tragically, is an all-too-familiar story. The fight, not only against repealing the ACA, but for expanded and improved Medicare for All, has become my calling. I didn't choose this fight, it chose me. Recently, at yet another town hall, I once again witnessed a self-proclaimed progressive congressman regurgitating the same old corporatist rhetoric, circumventing the real reason our healthcare system is failing, profit. As a businesswoman, I understand all too well that insurance and pharmaceutical companies are solely motivated by profit margins. But I'm not just a businesswoman. I'm a human, a grieving mother, a Nevadan, and now an activist. I know that healthcare is a human right, not just another consumer product. In order to ensure that all Americans have quality, comprehensive healthcare, we must remove profit margin from the equation. We must fight loudly and proudly for Medicare for all. So today, I'm announcing my intention to bring this fight for my home district all the way to Washington. We don't have time to wait around for career politicians, their donors, or special interests to do the right thing. We need bold action now. We need representatives in Washington that understand the stakes of this fight and who will never stop advocating for the people. I'm Amy Valella, and I'm much, much more than a grieving mother. But because I am a grieving mother, I will never give up. I will never get tired, and I will never stop fighting for justice and dignity for Nevadans and for all the people of this country. Stay tuned for more information in the coming days and weeks about my campaign. Thank you. I'm Amy Valella, and I approve this message. Well, I think reforming our healthcare system is a process. And 
we need to have um, representatives that are representing the interest and um, the best interest of their constituents. And unless we have people who are willing to be bold and to fight this fight loudly and boldly in Congress, we will never be able to get to um, Medicare for all. You know, um, like many Americans, I was always told that if you do all the right things, if you are working and you're going to college and you're supporting your family, that you're safe and the system works. But um, unfortunately, you know, I found out the hard way that this is not true. It is so important. Every day that goes by, there's another individual or family that's facing a health care crisis and um, either losing their life or they're trying to navigate a health care crisis without even concentrating on their illness for sake um, and they're concentrating on how are they going to pay for their health care services or they're foregoing medicines or treatments because they are worried about the cost or they just simply can't afford it. I know that it was really uh, a game changer for me that um, I really looked at Representative um, Kiwin as a low hanging fruit, like it was not someone I'd really have to concentrate on because he is a member of the Progressive Caucus. It surprised and shocked me um, that the numerous times that I reached out, the times I called his office, that I went and visited his office, I sent emails, and this was all before that town hall that you saw. It really shocked me that even with a face-to-face meeting, that, um, first of all, he would not co-sponsor, and I felt that his responses were um, disingenuous, that he was not being forthright in the reasons why he would not co-sponsor H.R. 676. And even with the numerous attempts afterwards to still try to um, get him to co-sponsor, he has repeatedly refused to do so. And to me, this is a life-and-death situation. There's nothing worse than having to hold your loved one in your arms and to have them die. And and as a mother, I could say, especially as a mother or a father, to watch a child that you've raised and loved um, from the time they were young, to have them die in your arms for something so preventable. Uh, not only are you consumed with grief, but it's compounded with rage and anger and frustration at this system that we live in this great country and we still do not have the basic human right of health care that 33 other nations, comparable nations to the United States, have. As an American people, we are tired of having profit put over us, the 99%. So you are running a people-powered campaign. You're working with people uh, from the draft Bernie movement. Um, so can you just tell us about what you guys are doing and what the focus is going to be on? Really, we're building alliances with many different organizations um, and really finding a safe place for all these people who are disenfranchised at not being presented um, to in our um, government system because their, their representatives are putting profit over people. Um, my platform is going to be making sure that people are put over profit, um, whether it's racial, social, economic, and those things usually they try to make them so they are separate problems and they forget that there's a huge intersectional qualities of those, of those issues and they don't address that. Um, when we have injustices in one of those, then we'll have injustices across all of those issues. Um, I am really, really big on that. Um, there needs to be racial justice, um, whether it's in our prison population, pay, housing, housing for LGBTQ people, um, whether it's, you know, like Lena would say, my whole damn dollar. <laughs> um, you know, there are, there are so many injustices, and they really all stem to the same same issue. It's fundamentally that profit is being put over people. So that is really what I'm running. And, you know, coming from a background as an executive level accountant, I understand completely how for-profits work. And I understand that um, we need to make sure that profit is not in places where it should not be, such as healthcare, prisons. Um, these are things that should not have profit involved, school systems. We need to have um, equality and justice in all those areas. One of the, the main things that I am also um, 
really concentrating on is having sustainable energy that will improve everything. It needs to be economically um, sustainable as well as environmentally friendly and putting some infrastructure in place that puts us on the same level as other countries as they're developing this, we're falling behind because we're letting the market drive our decisions on our um all of these issues, it's it's always being market driven, and and again, it's another it's another example of putting profit over people. So I know you know definitely it's Medicare for all. I don't think I'll be able to get there um, quick enough to co-sponsor. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'll ask if I can fax it over, maybe. <laughs> um, and also democracy. We need um, one of the big things too is we need to have our um, our campaigns clean again, clean financing of, of our campaigns, um, get rid of Citizens United. That's major. Open up our primaries. Um, also, you know, hopefully we can get something where we can have ranked voting um, and move towards publicly funded elections. We need to start being able to have people represent us that are for the people. We the people. Um, I think a lot of times we get really caught up in politics and all this, um, you know, which which party you in and all this. Bi- you know, to me, a lot of the issues we're arguing about are bipartisan. If we talk about the issues, and that's something I would really strive towards is to really keep on on the issues and not get caught up in all of the other drama that's happening. Um, you really see a lot of politicians out there getting caught up in that and they're not listening to the people. So one of the things that we're going to do in in my campaign is that we're going to have a listening tour. I want to hear from the constituents in CD4 what are the things that are that they're worried about? What are the top priorities for the constituents in CD4? And really listen and knock on every door. We need to hear from everyone, from every economic background, from every social background. We need to hear what are the, the primary issues that they're facing and how can we help them? And again, that's done by knocking on every door. So um, that's something I'd like to do. And, and I know too that, um, you know, Coming from the background I came from, I wasn't always an executive. You know, being a single mom and raising two children on my own, there are many times that I had to use the safety nets that are in in our system. You know, I've been on Medicaid for pregnant women and children. I've been on WIC. There was a time I was um, temporarily on food stamps. As I was putting myself through college, um, while I worked and took care of my children, and it's very, very, very difficult and hard for anyone to come out of that system. It is so hard right now the way it's set up. Um, It's almost impossible. I can't tell you how many times that I had to choose between feeding my kids or seeing if we could go to someone's house to eat or, you know, who has gas on that we can go or water on and can I let that go instead of the electricity. These are real problems. And, you know, when I hear things like politicians saying, well, instead of buying that cell phone, they should have bought health insurance. Wow. Are they really out of touch with what is the everyday experience for the majority of our population? (laughs) That is not the issues that are facing the 99%. That I can tell you. And especially people that are having difficulties in their life. So many of uh, Americans are one paycheck, one job away from poverty. And they don't have anything in. You know, one of the things you hear now that even throwing around is having a a savings plan for health care. Um, a lot of people are just trying to pay the electric bill. So <laughs> I'm, that is what's striking me is that they really don't, they are not um, really in touch. And we need Americans who understand what it's like for a typical American, the 99%, you know, what it's like for them, their struggles. And I can tell you, I understand a lot of those struggles from my background and from what I did. It wasn't handed easy to me. Um, and so these are a lot of um, issues that are close to me. Um, you know, even while we haven't spoken about immigration, having humane immigration policies, you know, um, my husband's an immigrant. 
Um, also, my sister's husband was an undocumented immigrant from Mexico. Um, Fifteen years he lived trying. They had to fight to try to get him to get um, become a citizen, even leaving the country. And it was insanely expensive and difficult to navigate. So um, I feel like I have a lot of experience and a lot of real-life issues. Um, and I also have to counterbalance that a lot of experience in the business world as an executive, and I understand how this all balances and how we might be able to move our country forward to representing the people, we the people, um, instead of just the special interests, the 1% and the wealthy. So what can we do to help you succeed? Can we knock on doors for you? Can we make calls for you? And where can we find out more about your campaign? Um, We definitely are a grassroots um, campaign. So we're going to be doing clean campaigning. So we are not going to be having any super PACs or anything of that sort. Um, It will be from small donations. That is important to me. I don't want to take money from the institutions possibly that had played a part in why my daughter is dead. That is not something I'm interested in. I want it to be about we the people. You can find out more and um, you can donate your time, money, calling for us, anything um, at Amy, the number four, thepeople.com. So my website's amyforthepeople.com. We are definitely a grassroots campaign and um, there'll be more to come in in Nevada. And uh, stay tuned for our platform because we have a lot more coming um, beyond even just me on this. So um, we're very excited. We have um, some excellent activists here and uh, it feels good to... um, to be doing something about it and to not just be accepting that this is what we're given. Um, That's not what America was based on. America was based on the people having a voice. So we are definitely for the people. We are we the people for the people. And, uh, And that's how we're going forward with this campaign. So I want not just Ruben Kewen, but also other members of Congress to learn from this experience. The next time you're at a town hall event, and you tell one of your constituents no and refuse to represent them, they might just come for your job one day. Well, that is all I've got for you guys this week. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I want to send a special thank you to all of the new subscribers as well as our Patreon patrons and our PayPal donors and contributors. You guys are just, you help the show so much. I can't even tell you. So thank you all so much for your kindness and generosity. Uh, You guys are absolutely fantastic. And look, if you've made it this far in the episode, uh, thank you so much. You rock. You truly are a human support loyalist, which I never expect you to be. So thank you all. Uh, I will see you next week. Have a great day.